My guest today is a South African journalist, radio presenter and author whose career has taken her across the globe in search of extraordinary people with remarkable stories, a woman after my own heart. Sarah Jane McCullough King is also an advocate for adoptees like herself and someone who is passionate about anything that relates to identity issues, race, mental health and addiction. She has a fascinating story herself, which she started telling in her first memoir, Killing Caroline, but the tale continues and with dramatic effect in book number two, out now, Mad Bad Love. Sarah Jane, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I've, I've seen a lot of you this past month and I'm not at all excited about it. <laughs> Thanks for chatting with me again. Um, mm, pleasure. For the first time we chatted, we s- centered on adoption, which arguably for me, among other things, forms the basis of killing Caroline. But Mad Bad Love picks up on some other primary themes, including motherhood and addiction, and this time addiction being not only your own. But before we get cracking on that and the ins and outs of Mad Bad Love, I wanted to chat about having enough life in you to put out two incredible memoirs. I looked into it, actually, and there's a list of authors. Um, There's like several articles, actually, of authors who have written more than one memoir. Because I thought this... This can't be usual, and it's not. It's unusual. No, it is, isn't it? I think it's quite usual. Augustine Burroughs, Augustine Burroughs, like, would top the list for me, and he's one of my absolute personal faves. My own publisher, Melinda Ferguson, she has got three. Her fourth memoir is coming out in September. There's a few of us. I mean, I, I think it's <laughs> incredible. It, something, something that, you know, it's when you write a memoir, right, you need – Enough life, be you can't just write about your vanilla like picket fence upbringing. But I think everybody has a trauma or a story to tap into. I think it's a, and you look at it, you look at your life poetically in a way. Can I tell you the number of people who, after I wrote Killing Caroline, and this always happens when you write a book, is that you go to book shows and you do all sorts of things, and people inevitably come up to you and go, I'd like to write a book, but who would care? Now, Killing Caroline, the story of that was such a sort of South African story. And it's not something that sort of happened to everybody. Not everybody has been through that experience. So in from a purely kind of commercial sense and a book sense and a publishing sense, the, the story, my story was a gift. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was always it was always going to lend itself to a book. But what I write about in Mad Bad Love is an awful lot of people's experiences. And I think sometimes people underestimate, first of all, what people want from a book. What people want to do from memoir is be able to relate. That's all. Certainly that's what I want. Um, And it doesn't mean that I have to have lived the same life as somebody. I can relate to, you know, a, a pig farmer in... Uh, I don't know, you know, the, the Outer Hebrides, if, because the human condition is the human condition. Um, so I always say when people say, oh, but who would care? Well, an awful lot of people would care. Obviously, it helps if you can write, because then that, you know, brings to life one's experience. But to kind of pick up on what you just said, I don't think I know anybody who in their life hasn't experienced something, something that others could relate to that was traumatic or difficult or challenging. So yeah, that's uh, the, 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 uh, and and to, to answer the question, 
I do, I have said now, I don't want life to give me anything, at least for the next 20, <laughs> 30 years, that provides material enough that would justify another 250 page memoir. You want no. you want boring after this. My next my next book is gonna be about a middle-aged white woman basket weaving in the Cote d'Azur. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. That takes us to my last question. Before we get there, did you think after killing Caroline that there would be so much more to your story? Did I think there would be another book? Yes, but that's because I'd kind of caught the book writing bug. Did I know it was going to be this book? No. And an awful lot of the stuff that I write about in Mad Bad Love hadn't even happened by that point. And, and there's part of me that could sit here and go, and I wish it hadn't because it was really hard and traumatic, but I've survived. And I guess that's really what the, <laughs> the book kind of comes to is, is survival, I guess. Mm. So let's, okay, let's get into the thick of things then. I, I feel like Mad Bad Love picks up where Killing Caroline left off, but with a few ga- gaps that you weave in to get readers up to speed. For those who have no idea what to expect Give us the elevator pitch for Mad Bad Love. So that's a good, yeah. And and it doesn't pick up from where Killing Caroline left off on purpose. I, I guess it's it's almost like a prequel and a sequel. Yeah. Right? Because yes. it goes, you, you know what I mean by that, because yes. you've read it. But um, it sort of, it takes us back to, to parts of Killing Caroline, perhaps that I didn't really, through a different lens, through a bit of a different lens. And then it takes us through to sort of more present day and how how the things that happened in Killing Caroline many, many, many years ago, then went on to affect the way that I lived my life as, as, a, as an adopted adult it's it's about unprocessed trauma. It's about when you don't have the language as a child to express how you feel and, and talk about your trauma and talk about the pain that you're experiencing because you don't have the language for it and nobody's giving you the language for it. And how all of that unprocessed trauma, because we are, are all of us people who exist in the context of our childhoods and the things that have come before. And if we had unpleasant childhoods or difficult childhoods or difficult experiences in our earlier years, unless you've been given space to work through those things, they of course then manifest in our adult lives. So that's really, that's really what it's about. It's Mm. that, and that's the prequel element, I guess, in terms of remember that chicken killing Caroline. Well, she's still completely (laughs) insane because of all the stuff that went on in it. (laughs) Do you, do you think readers will be able to get stuck into mad, bad love if they haven't yet read Killing Caroline? Yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah, they will. Because I think, you know, I that was another thing that was really hard is that I kept saying to my publisher, how do I, without repeating everything that's happened in Killing Caroline and being able to kind of set a context for it in Mad Bad Love, because not everyone who will have read Mad Bad Love is going to read Killing Caroline or has read it or will want to read it. And she said, you'll work it out. Thanks for that, Melinda. And I did work it. I did. That was the extent of her advice. And I did work it out, really. And I'm able to summarise Caroline in sort of a a chapter, not even. And, yeah, I I do think people will get it Mm. because people understand trauma. People understand exactly what I've just said. We've all, most of us have had that thing where, you know, something's gone on in our childhood or in our adolescence that affects us 
later in life and affects the people that we grow up to become. So, yeah, I don't think it's necessary that people um, read and buy it, although I would like them to read. I was going to say that. I was going to say, look, do so uh, to readers now. Do so. Buy and read both books. But you could read Mad Bad Love because um, Sarah Jane, you really do are very artfully as a writer keep readers up to speed like I mentioned you there is a there is a kind of synopsis of what happens in Killing Caroline but that it's not repetitive so I was like yeah no, actually I was, was wondering and and you did that really well <laughs> that it was really hard though and, and in fact let me tell you the, the I I sent the, the way that this book kind of happened was different to the last book, but I, in sort of, uh, I was midway through, I guess, in what, Jan, Feb, and I sent my publisher kind of what I had so far, and I was really uncomfortable with where it was at because I was like, it started, the book moved it's moved itself around a lot, and it started with kind of the repetition of Killing Caroline. I was like, I can't start here. People who've read it will go, oh, so you're telling us the same story again, and we've just paid 250, 320 um, rand for it. No. And Melinda was kind of like, no, you need to change it. So I changed it, and I hope it now works. I'm fascinated to speak to people who read Mad Bad Love first mm. and then go back and read Killing Caroline, because I think that will also be an interesting thing. I think that will but, – but I don't think you need to have – you don't need to have read Killing Caroline before Mad Bad Love, definitely not. Okay, so – You've spoken about the, the the midway through the book, your feels and your feelings and your hesitations. Yeah. But talk to me about the genesis of the book. So you've mentioned Melinda, Melinda Ferguson, um, mm. who was with you through your first book. She probably looks at your life and is just like, yes, cha-ching. I love yeah. this woman. <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, so as we've mentioned, Killing Caroline is about your roller coaster life um, as a child quote-unquote, born a crime, to borrow from from Trevor Noah. Then your second book, you, how did you approach – I'm curious, I'm so curious. Like, how did you approach Mel? Did you guys know it was coming? Or was she like, what the fuck, SJ? Like, how could, how could this happen to one? What were you doing? Or was she there all along, you know? How did you go, okay, I'm doing it? This, the, and then also you need an endpoint in your life, right? There needs to be a bit of – this is where I'm ending it. But your life is carrying on. That's the thing about a memoir. Unless you're yeah, writing yeah. when you're 80, 90 and you're like, I lived a good long life. This is what it was about. You're midway, before midway, you know, in your life. Things are carrying on. How do you get to that end point to start conceptualizing book two? So I, like I said, I always knew there was going to be a book two. And I'm really lucky in that Melinda kind of was like, I'll publish whatever you write. But but she, and not in terms of, you know, <laughs> writing about a middle-aged white woman basket weaving in the Côte d'Azur, but, but in terms Words of... Words out for other publishers if, if they are interested in a book about that. <laughs> yeah, that's for Barbara Cartland's publishers. That's for who at Mills and Boone. Um, no, she, she I think just in the sense that she knew, like I knew, that somewhere in there, um, there was going to be something else. And there was, I mean, you know, what Killing Caroline is is... Yes, it's a sort of life story. And yes, it's memoir, but it's only bits of of things that have happened over the last forty two years, or at the time thirty seven years. It zoned in on certain things around my uh, heritage and identity and and growing up. It wasn't didn't tell the full story of who is Sarah Jane McQuilla King. I 
I thought the second book would be more about mental health stuff. And and there are, it, it is in some sense about that and going into clinics and psychiatric wards, but it's, it ended up being more about um, my relationship with my with my daughter's father and codependency and love addiction and loving somebody in active addiction and and when I had started to do Melinda does these incredible writing workshops she's got such a skill in that in that regard and and I just like they just keep me fresh and I like to do them and it's, it's a little gift to myself and I enjoy reading other people's writing so I started to over lockdown she'd done a few zoom ones and I'd kind of joined in and I started to write and and a lot of what was happening, a lot of what is in Mad Bad Love was happening at that time. And so it was really kind of fresh and and I was writing that stuff, but I was really holding back on the hectic stuff around my relationship um, because it was happening at the time. And I was so traumatized by what was happening. It was so awful. And then Melinda kept saying, you need to write this stuff. And Melinda, in addition to being my publisher, is also my friend. And she had... Um, and she's also a recovering addict like I am and, and like um, my my daughter's father is. And so and she knows us. She knows us as outside of publishing media world. She's our friend. Um, and she could see what was going on. And she kept saying to me, this is what you need to write. This is what you need to write. And I wasn't ready to write it. It was just too much. And then in November last year, um, I'd kind of reached a point where I was able to start writing. And so I did, and and suddenly it turned into what it is. I didn't ever envisage that it would be, (laughs) that the the focus would really be on on this relationship. But then suddenly it was almost, people always say, oh, is it cathartic? It wasn't, but it was like a coming together of, things and seeing how I always knew why I behaved the way I did. I always knew that I was, you know, that the impact of being adopted at such a young age and not having it spoken about and all that, I knew it had messed me up, but I, 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 I needed to, Melinda kept saying to me when I was writing a lot of the very hectic stuff between me and Enver, people want to, will want to know why aren't you leaving? Why aren't you leaving? And then I realized, oh, I need to write that. I need to mm. contextualize it, which is why I say Mad Bad Love is a is a prequel and a sequel, because it kind of it, it encompasses it all. It explains why I didn't leave. Um, it explains why I didn't leave this toxic relationship, why I even got into it. So the book was 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 not what I expected to be, or what I expected it to be particularly a when I envisaged doing a second book five years ago after doing Killing Caroline and even probably within the last year it's only really kind of from November I mean I wrote hard for six months November to May um, and it was only sort of midway possibly through that process that was like this is what it is Mm. and I am so pleased this is what it is I'm really I'm probably more proud of Mad Bad Love from a personal point of view of survival than I am of killing Caroline. I mean, I think the writing's better, you know, that from a literary point of view, I think it's better, but from a personal point of view, a lot of what I write about has happened in the last three years. It, it's not, you know, whereas a lot of killing Caroline had happened a long time ago. So I think that's really brave because you, you do talk about very recent events. I mean, lockdown feels like last year, it was two years ago. Um, your daughter Zora in the book is is only two and a half now. She's only three mm. in November. She's mm. she's a baby. I gave birth mm. in lockdown, so it just feels so fresh, so raw. 
and in amongst all of that, you penned this experience. And uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> I wanted to ask, was it hard or therapeutic? But I, I suppose both. Really hard. Mm. Really hard. Hard because a lot of the stuff that had happened, hard because the right, because, because of the time period and the, because of the proximity and because of the currentness, a lot of the stuff that I was writing about I was I was processing for the first time. Whereas with Killing Caroline, a lot of the stuff I'd been in therapy for a really long time, time also, not that I believe that time's a healer, really. Um, but but you know, that there'd been kind of a, a processing over the years. Whereas this, there were there were incidents that I write about in the book that were so painful at the time, I thought they'd kill me. And that's you know how the things we love can nearly kill us. And then I, I knew I had to write them because if I'm not writing them, why are you even bothering write to write? And that was hard. Like there were times, and also because, you know, um, Enver is the father of, of, of my daughter and it was difficult reliving that stuff that was so awful and staring at him every day, mm. you know, or, or whatever. That was hard. It's like when you have a dream about your partner that they did something that they cheated on you or did something really awful, to put it in really vanilla terms, and you wake up angry with them. But yeah, it's had it to that actual events that happened that you're reliving, you know, and, right? And, and also, like, yeah, and I, and I and I hadn't I hadn't expressed my anger at the time because because at the time I at the time that the stuff was happening I was in survival mode so it kind of it all just started coming out and that was that was really hard and it was painful it wasn't just anger it was it was painful to to kind of to go through that I don't know if it was therapeutic I mean you know ask me in five years time I guess but it certainly it highlighted areas of my life it changed it changed my the conversations I was having in therapy so, so there's a presumption here that therapy makes you feel better necessarily, but that was probably the st- the processing was a type of therapy that's like the the part that does not make you feel better, but is so necessary to get exactly to that part. Because there, for me, very rarely does therapy make me feel better in the moment. Oh, it's hard. But I know into yeah, it's really hard. I know intellectually that in the long run of my life, it is necessary for me not to live in denial and, you know, and, and chaos and pain. It's, it's something, sometimes therapy is something that the benefits of which you only see years later. <laughs> so, so presumably, well, I mean, I know uh, you mentioned it as well. Enver is still in your life, but he'll always be in your life really. Cause he's the he's father of your because child. A, because he's the father of my child. Mm. I mean, you know, that's, that's, he will always we will we will never not have our daughter so in in that sense yeah and and that was the other thing is that as i was writing i was like people are going to read the book and then go so is he clean and are you together and i was like i don't first of all the thing around is he clean is his story to tell it's not my story it's not it's not my business to tell people whether he's clean or not clean if he wants to you know stick his head above them because he, you know this isn't sarah jane mccuala king and enver this is my book and if he wants to talk about that he can talk about that and then in terms of like are they together um we will always be together in a sense because he's the father of my child how does he feel about you telling his story or rather you being graphic about his story in the context of your own <laughs> He's all right. He's all 
right about it. Listen, he, <laughs> I feel that, and I hope, and I think he would probably agree that I've done it in a way that I'm telling my story and he is a character in the story. I don't tell his story. Mm-hmm. I tell my experience of him within my story. What, what Enver in Mad Bad Love is, it's 1% of who he is. It's 1% of his life. Um, he has the other 99%, which again, if he wants to write that story one day, which I would love for him to do um, about his life, you know, and I would be 1% of that book, right? Mm-hmm. It, it just, I would love him to do that. But um, I think by having done Killing Caroline, I, I like to think that I've now reached a point where I can write my own story, which involves other people without telling their stories and without crossing the line. And I'm sure that there are people who featured in those books who would disagree vehemently with that. Um, But that's because it's, it's, you know, people don't feel not everyone's going to write a book, are they? And they're going to think, well, I didn't have a right to reply. I don't think I've, I really don't think I've painted anyone unfairly. Everything is true as far to to the best of my knowledge. Um, There were things, you know, also, again, because of because it's all quite recent, there was there was still stuff that I was angry about. And I would write stuff and then go, why are you writing that? Why are you including that? Are you including it because you're bitter and angry and you want to expose somebody, in which case you need to take it out? Unless it is absolutely crucial to the narrative of this story. And I think that only happened a couple of times and it might have just been the odd line here or there. Mm. But the re- I had to look at why I was putting it in. And then and then I realised why I was putting it in. I took it out and then I went to therapy and went, I'm still really fucked up about this. <laughs> Which is also <laughs> so much part of, it's it's a therapy. To, to be scrutinising yourself and your intentions is also a hard part of therapy that nobody really talks about. Very right? hard. You, you hosted the launch of, that's how you kind of flew onto my radar because I'm, I'm – you know, up here in Joburg and you're down in Cape Town. And, but you know, it was just like, Oh, here's this human being that exists that you have to talk to at some point. When you hosted the launch of Shana Fife's book, Ochat. So in your discussion, it's, it was such a good discussion. Um, I love her. It struck me. I do. So do I, I'm a huge fan. Um, in, in that discussion, it struck me as incredibly poignant that there was a story she told in her book, her aunts that she regretted including in the book. So you have touched on this now, which is why I'm asking it. This was something that she later apologized for to her aunts. Is there something that you do regret that, or that you kind of think, okay, there I, I wasn't in the right space. You scrutinized everything line for line, everything you're hundred percent happy with. That's amazing. That's amazing to say. Well done. <laughs> you, you, know, you know why? Because I think I think also a lot of it, and and you know what? The people in question again might disagree. Mm. They might disagree and say, actually, no, you shouldn't put that in. But but I sleep okay at night. I think the fact that I've been in recovery for oh, it's going to be fifteen years on Wednesday. I um so much of recovery is about looking at one's own stuff, right? And oh, I don't do it perfectly all the time. Sometimes I don't do it at all, but it has after 15 years kind of become a habit. It's not a habit I ever like because nobody ever likes looking at their own shit and being like mea culpa, but you have to do it. I have to do it in order to stay sane and sober. So I do it. And so, yeah, like, like I said, I, 
I, I really do think that not only in this book and, you know, in, I hope in everything I write, I put eyes on myself and I hold my own hands up. I mean, there's parts in this book where I write about how badly I behave towards certain people um, and how I then had to go and apologize to those people. And, you know, a crawl was stuck in my throat when I did it, but I knew I had to do it. So I know there's there's nothing there's nothing in here that I have a regret writing about. So it does. It gets really deep, really vulnerable, very early. You're not very kind to yourself always. You're, you're quite self-deprecating mm. and not always in a tongue-in-cheek funny way. Like you do, I'm like, yo, that was mean. And you just write it because that's the fact, you know. You're laying yourself out there. Um, you're laying your relationship out there and arguably his sobriety as well as your own. For me, there, there are a lot of, you know, what-ifs in terms of what could happen next. Something which no one, not even you, ha have the answers to. So how do you reconcile being in the public eye being so open and vulnerable to people seeing what comes next, whether they quote unquote, because there's lack of a, for lack of a better word, it's seeing your mistakes, you know, it's life. The public eye is bullshit really, isn't it? It, it really is. I mean, I, ex I experienced being in the public eye in such a minuscule minor way. And sometimes I can get quite inflated about, oh, I'm that, person off the radio and, you, and you're quite you know because we've all got ego haven't we and, and it's nice to it's nice to kind of be be recognized and it's nice to that the good parts of that can make one feel falsely probably feel quite nice but the reality is is that we all kind of eat and breathe and shit and do all of that kind of stuff and yeah it's a, <laughs> There, there were there were times when I was writing when I was like, oh, but then what if this? And then what if people say, oh, but why did you do this? And what? So what if they do? I mean, you know, until such time as you are paying my electricity bill, I really couldn't, I really can't afford to care that much, right? The the people whose opinions I care about or whose who, who the people who I've written this book for are people who really have been who who maybe have gone through the same thing as as me and maybe one line in this book will make them think I can do this for another day I can survive for another day people who don't like me anyway and who don't like listening to me on the radio and who didn't like killing Caroline and who are then going to say oh this is a load of old shit mm, okay what, what must I do about that yeah. I can't sit and worry about that for the next however long I'll go insane so it's a it's that constant and I decided this time you know I, I'm in a lot of um book group things on Facebook where people talk about books and blah 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 and I know what I'm like I I'm like a it's it's quite narcissistic in a way I guess but I I know I knew that I was going to be like right from the first of August I'm going to start seeing what everyone said about it and then I'm like get out get out of the groups, get out, mm. get out of the groups so I've removed myself and I'm not going to look at what people say about it because it, I'm not I'm not well enough to, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean, I, I'm always the type of person that's, you know, this is the whole point. Love me, love me. I'm desperate, you know. Um, and as, as much therapy in the world and as much recovery in the world, no one likes to hear people saying things that, that criticize them or whatever and some days I'm better at hearing that stuff than others but if you caught me on the wrong day because I'm still in a process of healing around an awful lot of stuff some stuff that happened 40 years ago and some stuff that happened last week if you catch me on the wrong day um or if I'm caught on the wrong day 
and somebody says, oh, I thought the book was a load of shite or why did she say that or why has she done this? I could crumple and I don't want to do that. I think you know, it also depends. Uh, it also yeah. depends how who it comes from at times. And so yeah. the timing, it depends on the timing and then it depends on whoever that audience is that, that said whatever, you, you pick it up differently. Oh, that's definitely my experience. I look at people like, you know, I interviewed like proper famous people and like, like Kelly Kamala, I've interviewed her a couple of times. And my tech takeaway from her is that and I don't know her personally, but she always comes across as a really sweet, kind, lovely person. She's absolutely destroyed pretty much every day in the media. And I'm not going to comment on anything outside of, you know, but her and my interaction with her. And I think I would part of me thinks oh, I'd love that level of fame, the ego part. I don't really want it. I don't want it. I, but that, that ego part of me and the love me, love me part thinks, oh, that would be lovely. And then the more realistic part goes, you would hate that. And you probably wouldn't handle it very well because, you know, I can have 10 reviews that go absolutely love mad, bad love. And one person will be like, there was a bit on page 66 that I didn't like. And I feel suicidal. So rather <laughs> <Yes>. just not. <laughs> so so you let know, me give you no pressure to to myself, yeah. but let me give you my experiential review of Mad Bad Love. Okay, go on. Yeah, okay. yeah, no pressure. Please don't be mean. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's an interesting take, uh, depending on on the reader. So you opened up a world for me of addiction in the context right. of South Africa. I am not an addict. I know addicts. I think all of us do so that it was nice to tap into that's how okay that's how they do things there and like that and it, a large part is of how you would see it in the movies or in shows like euphoria like okay that's how recovery goes so that was super interesting to me but where I was cut right open is when you do speak about mental health and I have to read this it's just a line where you say um you're dealing with kind of being diagnosed with mental illness. Um, and it's a, I think it's in a, in a flashback. And you say, law, law graduates from Surrey who'd gone to Pony Club didn't go for psychiatric evaluations. Yeah. <laughs> I do think, though, the climate is right at the moment to be more open about mental illness. And I wonder how you feel about that because you're pretty open about, correct me if I'm wrong here, being uh, diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I think this narrative has shifted in in a big way in recent years where people who were diagnosed with borderline didn't have a platform whatsoever. They were voiceless. It was, mm-hmm. it was you know, psychiatrists and doctors speaking about people with this vil- these villains with this condition. Do you feel like it's it is like that that the narrative has shifted? I guess I um I think. My my frame of reference for borderline was always like, you know, like Girl Interrupted, Winona Ryder or whoever it was, Angelina Jolie in that like hectic movie and and slit wrists and everything. And though I've I've done my fair share of wrist slitting, um, that it was never it was never put in the context of, but they're also normal people, you know what I mean? They could also be a friendly local radio presenter. It was never put in that. It was always like they're going to be um, rocking back and forth in a padded south ever. And again, I've done my fair share of rocking back and forth, but I also live like a really kind of like average life in the southern suburbs of Cape Town. 
You know what I mean? Where like the highlight of my life is finding the brand of chamomile tea that I like on the shelf. So it's it, it was always it was always done in quite a kind of shock way of borderline personality disorder. And then, you know, there are a bunch of serial killers and crazies. And and then when I got diagnosed with it, you know, by my lovely psychiatrist in the southern suburbs in a very kind of pedestrian office, you know, um, it was kind of like when she described the difference, because I'd previously been diagnosed as bipolar which never really felt like it fit, but it was like bipolar was the mental health illness de jour at one time, wasn't it? We were all getting diagnosed with bipolar. And, and actually um, it, it did me a great disservice because to diagnose me with bipolar was to completely negate the childhood trauma that I'd suffered. Um, and borderline just happened to, it, it fit better. It, it was like, yes, that, that I fit that, that profile more, but I would love to, I remember when I, said I was on a, I think I was doing the late night show and I said something about having borderline personality disorder and somebody messaged in and was like um said something they were trying to be very kind but they were like you don't need to disclose all that stuff and I was like no I do I do need to disclose that stuff because I don't care who knows it, it, you know how, how has that changed your opinion of me five minutes ago you didn't know that I had borderline now you do what's changed in that time absolutely nothing other than 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 you know um and so for me the conversations i would i would love for more people to to talk about being borderline but i get why they don't i get why they don't yeah i don't even know if that answered your question no question? no you did you you answered it this the shifting narrative and you're you're part of that new wave i feel of people being like yes i have this and it needs to be normalized it needs to be aired out in much the same way as an adoptee's experience, which we've spoken about yeah. at length, needs to be aired out. This needs to, the hard to talk about topics need to see the light of day. And um, yeah, 100% that I feel the same way. And it's been so interesting for me as a journalist in um, researching these topics. Pre maybe 2017, borderline uh, personality disorder articles on it and information about it is written from the perspective of a psychiatrist or a psychologist or an academic and written about those people over there and written yeah. about them in the third person. And I've come across a lot more articles on the condition written to the person suffering from that mental illness. So mm. if you are experiencing symptoms of borderline personality disorder, it was it was just a really interesting shift. And I think it's an important one. I think also like, you know, often when we like, you know, we had mental health month and we have, you know, and, and the same old, and we talk about depression, anxiety, depression, anxiety. And, and those are like the two go-tos. And, and depression and anxiety are two of the symptoms that I expect. Having depression and having anxiety are two, just two things that I experience as a person um, with borderline. And, and the other thing being, I think people don't talk about it because it, it can feel like a death sentence. Once upon a time, when I was told that I had bipolar, which I, I don't think I do, and nor does my current doctor, um, you know, I was told you're going to be on medication for the rest of your life. And for a long, long time, I took medication and it worked. It worked for me, the medication. It stopped me from having, you know, it stopped me from wanting to kill myself a lot of the time. And it, and it kind of gave me an equilibrium, equilibrium. But the thing is, I don't have a chemical imbalance in my brain. I have childhood trauma. So really, the fact is, is that now here I sit as a 42-year-old woman who hasn't taken medication for three years. 
And that's because um, I, I really started doing deep work around that stuff. So there's no need for me at this stage. I'm not saying I will never take medication again, but at this stage with the work that I'm doing, there's no need for me to take medication. And, and this isn't a pro-war and anti-medication stance. It's almost, it's, but rather a thing of, um, I think an awful, I can't have been the only person that was told you're going to need to be on medication for the rest of the, your life because that's the only way you live a, a, a happy life. And also, you know, age helps. I'm a lot more able mm. to deal with stuff at the age of 42 than I was at 27. Right. I just am. Mm. I, I'm just I've got the maturity. I've got the life experience. I'm a mother now. I've got I've built a fan, particularly since being in recovery. I've built a, a safe family of people around me that offers me the support that perhaps I didn't have in my in my family growing up because they've all got their own issues, right? We've all got our own stuff. Our parents have all got their own stuff. Our parents can't be our therapists, if and particularly if their stuff's not healed, mm. right? And they definitely came from a generation where we weren't talking about having all these mental illnesses and whatever. So where I used to feel really angry towards my parents for not kind of being able to hold me in my mental health space, I'm now a little bit more realistic and kind of go, but they haven't dealt with their stuff. So mm -hmm. how would they be able to deal with mine really? And I've now got the agency as a 42 year old woman to, to do that. So let's talk about your fear of being a bad mother of, yeah, know, we spoke the last time we spoke, you spoke about having a fear of having the abandonment gene. Um, yeah. And, and Mad Bad Love starts with you pregnant at a clinic, mm. Um, mm. at a mental health clinic, that is, mm. considering this journey ahead of you. Can you read the, the prologue for sure. me and So the prologue listeners? is called Confessions of a Mad Bad Mother. Uh, 1.11 a.m., the clinic, May 2019. I'm a bad mother. I've always known I would be. I come from a place that insists that I could never have been anything else. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. A scorpion is a scorpion is a scorpion. Here I am, not yet swollen with the anticipation of what's to come, and I have already failed at motherhood. I failed, and the guilt of it gnaws away at the same place in which I must nurture a new life. You can't heal in the place you got sick, and yet this is the place I've come back to again and again, a place of healing and of sickness, the place where I met him. The one who once upon another lifetime seemed sent to save me from myself and who a few weeks ago in the before of it all delivered unto and into me what I've longed for all my life. But now he's gone, taken by his own demons, leaving me alone with a piece of his heart beating inside me. Some people hate places like this, places where there's a suggestion of dis-ease, a reminder of illness and of death. Perhaps that's exactly why I like it here and why I'm no stranger to this place. Every year I check myself into the clinic, every single year. If I were normal, I'd head to Plet or Neisner or maybe Thailand and Lotus pose the living shit out of myself. Or perhaps I'd float to Indonesia on a cloud of self-righteousness to rescue bull elephants from having bloated, sunburnt tourists hitch a cultural lift on their thick skin, sturdy backs. I might even prostrate myself before wizened old babas in India in the hope that their eons of patiently perfected spirituality might somehow rub off on me through prayer, proximity or osmosis. 
I retreat to the clinic when the sound of my heart crashing against the inner wall of my chest is louder than the beat of my own drum. When real life has begun to interfere with the life on life's terms type of life I've been trying to live since the first time I found myself here. Real life is the stuff that happens in between all those bullshit hashtag loving life, hashtag life goals, hashtags. It's what happens after you check yourself into your own asshole on Facebook or sanctimoniously post some dry witticism on Twitter or send a plate of garlic butter prawns into the Instagram ether just to let who the fuck knows or care know that you're hashtag clean eating again. Real life is what happens in between the I'm fine, the thank you for coming and the for sure, see you next week. It squeezes itself into the small guff filled crevices left by the we simply adored Paris last summer, the can't wait for thirst first Thursdays and the look how fucking happy and in love and satisfied sexually, spiritually and of course financially we are. And here's the picture to prove it. It deftly seizes the gap between the I'd love to and just tell me when and of course I don't mind, truly. And it takes hold, burrowing its gnarled roots into the precarious, sandy foundation of this perilous adventure called life. Real life does all of this and then, when it's properly anchored, takes an enormous, unceremonious dump on the false promise of make-believe. Given the opportunity, real life can, will and does jam its ugly, calloused, veruca-riddled foot into the door labelled full sense of security and kick you half to death. It's more than happy to leave you strewn across the bathroom floor, arms freshly diced and sliced by your own hand, gaping red and pissing self-hatred all over the Italian tiles. Hashtag no filter. Real life is a leveller. Real life is sneaky as hell. Real life doesn't give a flying fuck. One day, I'd like to get to the point where the choices may be the Maldives or the clinic, when the lull of the ocean has the same effect as 40 milligrams of Prozac, or when a walk on the beach at sunset provides a perfectly adequate alternative to Jungian therapy. Holiday or hospital this year, SJ, I'll muse while contemplating my half-packed suitcase. And before I'm even aware of what I'm doing, I'll fling a high-cut polka dot two-piece into the case, kick the lid shut, and that'll be that. The ill-fitting bikini will seal the deal. But not this year. This year, because it's what I do, it's the clinic. Yeah. If that doesn't make you buy this book, then I don't know what will. I read it and I was like, damn, I was done. I was done. I had to close it. I'm like, I'm just going to let that wash over me for a second. It, it reads like a, like a self-contained essay actually so it's funny you know what you asked me at the beginning about hmm. write it about like the writing and the thing my like I said to you so the second book was always I thought was always going to be about mental health and about when I was about two weeks before Killing Caroline came out I was in the clinic I was in the clinic and I and I make reference to it later in the in in Mad Bad Love but I when I was in the clinic I started writing stuff and some of the stuff that I was writing was in that prologue, but I didn't. <laughs> and then like three years later, I was back in the clinic again. So it all kind of fit in and, and the motherhood stuff. So some of, some of the lines in that are quite old, but, <laughs> but still ring true. Ring, Yeah. And as we've mentioned are, are really relevant for a lot of people, mm. including myself, who can, who can relate in a big, in a big way to that. 
I also mm-hmm. think, and you mentioned the book at some point. I was, I was looking for it, but I couldn't find it. You mentioned your child and how, I mean, there is a presumption that she will ultimately eventually read this. Did I feel like it could also be sort of a beautiful, vulnerable love letter to to your daughter. Um, and you do mention her at the end and how you owe it, almost owe it to her to have the shit figured out. I can't remember exactly how you phrased it or that you grapple daily. You owe it to, to your child to grapple daily with this yeah. and to figure it out and not ignore it. Um, so yeah. the presumption for me is one day she'll read this. Is that something that you did have in mind while writing? No, and people ask me that and, you know, and saying no, people will go, well, you're a terrible mother because what if she somebody hands it to her at school? I feel, I feel like in the same way that I grew up knowing that I was adopted, there was never a moment where I remember the conversation where my parents sat me down and said, you are adopted. It's my hope just because of who we are and the conversations that we have in our home and the people we have around us, that my daughter will have an understanding that, you know, mummy and daddy are people who have, uh, you know, who sometimes aren't well and who have a disease of addiction um, and that we have to, there's certain medicine um, therapy and NA meetings and stuff that we have to, it's our responsibility to, to make sure we take our medicine in that regard. And, yeah, I mean, I would hope that by the time she actively sits down and reads this book, most of what's in it will already have been discussed with her in an age-appropriate way. So don't don't you think that it is also really healing to acknowledge that you are human? You're not superhuman, perfect mother. And, and that's an important realisation to have that narrative with our kids so early on so I'm leaning into the the parenting side of my job here again Mm, mm, but mm. because you it took you how many years 40 years to realize that your parents are flawed and don't have their shit together and have a lot of trauma Mm, that they mm. need to deal with I already know though like I there there is something you know in some senses my parents are amazing and in other senses they they weren't um and my daughter will probably say the same thing about me but there's already things that I do very differently in our house. We apologize to, you know, um, I apologize to my daughter and, 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 and Enver the same, you know, um, when we make a mistake or when we get cross or when we, we apologize to her, that is us demonstrating that we are human. You are, you are, you are as of value and as you are as deserving as respect under this roof than, than we are we have an authority position because we're your parents and we, you know, we have a responsibility to make decisions that sometimes you won't like. And, and that's because we are your parents and we're older than you and, and we are tasked with doing things for your greater good. Um, that doesn't mean that we get it right all the time. And sometimes, you know, like even this morning, I think I did something, I don't know, I shouted or did something. And I'm really aware of saying to her, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And I don't even know if she gets it because she's two and a half. But if I keep doing that, by the time she's five, she'll understand what that means. Mm. No, and I can I can attest to that. I was actually telling my husband this morning that it was a really hard thing for me to hear, but I lost my temper in a, in a bad way, in a ragey, ugly way with my kids. And I also always often apologize to them. And um, at one point, my five-year-old, said to me 
Sam, could you please be a good mother now? And oh, that, but think of the context of when you've lost your shit with your kids that, that, that you'd be like, could you please behave yourself now? Yeah. That's how he was saying it to me. And I have yeah. some good friends in my life who remind me that it's an important thing in itself for your kids to be able to, to stand up and say that type of thing to you, to level with yeah. you and be like, you know what could let's let's reassess our behavior in this moment, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I mean, yes, sorry, I've made that about me, but it, it's to pick up yeah, on, on, yeah. on what you what you were saying. <sighs> What's next for Sarah Jane, other than your your basket weaving book? <laughs> yeah, other than the basket weaving. We're selling book. to Mills and Boone. Yeah, no, in addition to that. So um, there is there, there is another book that as I was writing this one started kind of talking to me in the back of my head and it's it's fiction. Well, if you weren't already sold on uh, Zara Dane's book, Mad Bad Love, her second memoir by uh, the prologue that uh, she so kindly read out, thank you for that, then, um, I, then I don't know. I don't know. But do have a look at the cover. You cannot miss it. You won't be able to miss it in... Um, any and all bookstores, I'm pretty sure. It, it, it's done its rounds. I've seen it out in the wild. And this is not the first or the last time that we'll be chatting about your writing. Thank you, Sarah Jane. Thank you, Sam. 